Welcome to Behind the Art, a podcast developed by Rockhampton Museum of Art. In each episode of Behind the Art, we unlock hidden treasures and activities of the creative sector with a focus on visual arts. Conversations with artists, collectors, curators, conservators, researchers, educators, and so many more. They will demystify the world that is visual arts. Join us as we take you Behind the Art. Today on Behind the Art, Bianca Asimovic, Rockhampton Museum of Art Director, talks all things preventative conservation and disaster preparedness with Christine Iana, conservator and museum consultant, and all things collection management with museum curator and consultant Lisa Jones. Christine and Lisa both have many years of working with collections and specifically preserving and presenting collections. Today, they share knowledge and experiences of working with collections throughout Queensland. Join us over the next half hour as we explore collections, how, why, and who forms them. And once they are formed, how to present and preserve collections for current and future generations. Christine and Lisa, you've both worked many years um, in collections and specifically around preserving and presenting collections. And today at Rockhampton Museum of Art, um, through Museums and Gallery Services Queensland, funded by Community Heritage Grant Program, you've shared uh, some of your knowledge and experiences of working in collections throughout Queensland. And how did you come to work in collections? It was a few years ago now and working, it was an accident, very serendipitous, happened to be in the right place at the right time. I'd been um, studying, finished my degree, had been working whilst getting my degree, Bachelor of Science, and um, needed to get paid employment. I went along to the Queensland Museum. It was suggested as a place that I could um volunteer, use some of my skills, and that feels like yesterday. And that's how my career started in the area of um, conservation, materials conservation, and caring so for objects. That's probably not unlike if someone was to try and pursue a career these days. Maybe volunteering is a good step in the right direction? I think it's really good for people to, on one level, Museum, libraries, galleries looks so romantic and the play, being an archaeologist, it looks so great that you really want to do it. But when you actually get in there, and I must admit my early days of the task I was given to do can be somewhat tedious. So they don't, you don't always get the opportunity to go and play with the most rare or interesting or be assigned the most um, uh, task that you perhaps not want to think you're doing for seven days, five days a week. Yeah. So what would have some of those tasks been? My early days of work, I um, was very fortunate to start work at the Queensland Museum working with the Maritime Archaeology Collection that had just been um, recovered from HMS Pandora, which sank off the Queensland coast in 1791. So quite literally we were just... um, had containers of wet 
um, artifacts from the shipwreck and we were swapping over the water they were stored in. So some of my school friends from that time described me as a bit of, I was actually a bottle wash. <laughs> so I was literally cleaning, rinsing and refreshing the salt water with tap water, reducing the salinity of bottles, which was an interesting project, but to outsiders it looked like I was just um, bottle washing. And and on the quantity of time, so you're talking it's not just a one-day job. I was working on the desalination project. That would probably have taken a good 12 months before the glass had completely desalinated um, in order to be able to take it through the drying process. So different materials, which then um, whilst my degree was in science, it was having an understanding of materials, material science, and a bit like we were talking about today, different materials react differently, whether it be a disaster, whether it be just left on the shelf, some materials are inorganic, some materials are organic, your books, papers, and they react differently. So it's given me a good understanding of how materials in collections will respond to different environments. And you probably never planned a career as a bottle washer. No. <laughs> so what was it about collections that drove you in there? Do it's, you have a, a family that collects a lot to where you a collector yourself? The industry is addictive. I must admit I didn't even know that I there was such a thing as a conservator, materials conservator. When I left high school, went to uni, I did have a science bent rather than a historical bent. Um, I liked the predictability of science or so I thought, um, but I always had been interested in history. Materials science, materials conservation gives you an opportunity um, to blend the two because in terms of working out how something will deteriorate, you need to know how and it was manufactured. So the historical site or history of how it was um, created comes into it. So so really you came through it from a science and history lens um, and that lands you and then museums. Once I was doing that work, it was there was so much knowledge, so there was so much information and treatments needing to be developed because in Queensland at the Queensland Museum, the only or the closest place was WA and WA were at the Western Australian Maritime Museum were becoming internationally known. So in order to um, increase my skills, I would go and uh, um, stay at someone's home in WA and just spend time doing the not a formal internship but working there for three or four months and then come back and maybe go to Victoria and spend some time there. And it's, it wasn't the place, it wasn't the situation where you could go off and do a formal qualification. You could do maritime archaeology, but materials conservation was a bit, a bit different. So that actually started me in, it's great to recover these objects from the shipwreck and you bring them back and some things would be treated in one way and some in another but how did you keep everyone in line? How did you know what you treated in this way and how, and how did you treat other things? So it was a natural progression to get interested in collections management and that's the sort of, to me, you needed to be able to assign 
a name, an object number, and be able to, and and at times that just became a, they became a, a bit personalised the objects because you followed them from when they were recovered to being stabilised and made discoverable online as they are now. Ideally, yeah, and we and then provides access for further presentation and interpretation, and then we introduce the role of curators. And so, Lisa, you've been um, in the role as curator with the Queensland Police Museum, and some people might be surprised to hear that Queensland Police even have a museum. What type of items are held in the collections that you work with and what's exhibited at the Queensland Police Museum? So it's interesting that you say that. A lot of schools know where the Queensland Police Museum is and utilise its education program, but as far as your average public knowing that there's a police museum and considering the collection is hundred will be 127 years old in November, so we count the from the time of first the first memo went out in 1893 um, asking for items to come into, and they called it a museum then, and I always put that inverted commas because it wasn't really. It was a cupboard at the depot at <laughs> Petrie Terrace in Brisbane and the collection was uh, designed or collected to teach recruits about criminality. So it was quite the black collection. It had items used by people who killed other people, so murder weapons, items that were used by people who uh, killed themselves, um, and those sort of, and criminal items, so lockpicks and things that uh, thieves used to break into houses. So there was a big call put out uh, very frequently for those sort of items to come in into the collection. Um, and then the collection changed over time from being internal collection specifically specifically designed for the police to learn from um, to a public collection. So it was open to the public in 1979, um, so a long time not being open to the public, and then moved into the current building we are in police headquarters in Roma Street in 1990. So the collection um, includes the largest part of the collection is uniform, there's been a lot of uniform changes in the last 155 years of the Queensland Police and then uniform-related uh, things, so belts, buckles, shoes, stockings, ties, collar clips, all of those sorts of things. And then the rest of the collection is police equipment, um, evidence from crimes, uh, seized weapons. I always make a joke about my collection is that I can kill you a number of different ways with my collection items. Um, and we built the, the education program and the display area, just talk about the history of the police and illustrate how far policing has come and what's changed over time. So uniforms changed, technology has changed, um, and how we solve crimes now. We profile a few of the more unusual crimes across time, a couple that are unsolved still after all this time, just to pique people's um, interest. Yeah, so the collection's quite eclectic. I guess you could say, and illustrates kind of it's kind of remembers its past, but we try and then also um, make sure the collection keeps up with the keeps up with the times, which is actually the more difficult thing to do. And so, collecting like I'm sitting here in a in a visual arts collecting institution, and so we follow a collection management plan, and we have priorities. So you're very clear on on your priorities. It's very much focused around Queensland, Queensland policing. But how do you choose what objects um, are coming in? Are they 
donated actively or, or reactively? How does the collection grow? So I've been there for 23 years now. So basically anything comes to the door and I can say yes or no without having to really think it through because I know the collection so well. Um, we get donations. We get a lot of internal transfers, so thing that come, things that come from within the building we're in or come from police stations or police officers. We get the occasional bequest of police-related things. So our collection management plan is bounded by the state of Queensland and goes back um, chronologically to 1859 when we separated from New South Wales, even though the Queensland Police didn't start until 1864. So we try and cover that kind of fuzzy pre-Queensland uh, or in between Queensland and the Queensland Police kind of area. Um but, and we know what we've got, so I've got an audit list that tells me exactly what I've got. So if you ring me up and ask me if I've got a da, 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 to do with Rockhampton, I can actually just look it up and oh, I'd love you. to know what you have from Rockhampton <laughs> because we have some very interesting murder stories here. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a much smaller collection. Um, we probably, oh, I say we've got about 20,000 things, but that includes like a couple of thousand buttons, you know, and those sort of um, massive collections that are a bit hard to kind of, um, not quantify, but um, decide whether you want to keep one or you want to keep all thousand or two thousand buttons in your collection. Um, uh, yeah, but it's easier for me to know what's in the collection, so we can be very pointed. So I know we have all a historic uniform. We don't have some originals of the very early uniforms, so we kind of pointedly look for those, but we're never going to find them. And then there's kind of satellite collections we'd like to grow as a couple of police helmet badges we don't have, and a couple of medals that we don't have. That kind of that kind of thing, but because the collection's um, pretty small, and we we stay pretty small because we have no space to expand. I love that you say twenty thousand is small. Yeah, well, you know, if you're counting <laughs> are all we those comparing multiples, it to like Queensland Museum, are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess, um, yeah. So I don't count that as being um, a terribly large a collection. Having said that, I have only catalogued like a couple of percentage of it. Yeah. Um, but we've got lots of multiples of things like the buttons, which really expand that number out. If you're talking about individual themes, I guess you can bring us back to about 8,000 things. Um, and if we don't add the photograph collection in, which is another thousands and thousands of photographs as yeah. well. And so the the title curator, it's such a widely used word. Um, we can have curator of botanics, curators of art. Um, in your instance with the Queensland Police Museum, what does the average day in a curator look like? What does a curator do? <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because I got this job in 97 and I didn't want to be a curator because I equated curator with paperwork. Yes. So, you know, the person who writes the policy, the collection policy and the disaster plan and keeps a handle on the correspondence and the memos. But if you, to anyone who's listening who's in a small collection, um, would know that um, you wear more than one hat. So in a day I would be uh, managing um, staff just in seeing what they're, what, the, what jobs are coming in, what historical inquiries we're getting. We get a 1,000 of those a year and we all do them. Um, I'd be answering questions. At the minute I'm uh, putting together a display for a new facility that's opening um, uh, week after next. Um, so doing labels and organising objects. Um, if there's a volunteer in, then I'm managing their scanning and I'm managing their job as well, uh, doing historical inquiries, keeping a handle on whatever a correspondence came in last week that I didn't get to. Um, it can be really posting book off. So we've got a, a centenary book that came out in 2014 
and no one's bought one for three years and two people decided they wanted one the last 10 days. So that was Everyone's me. Everyone's home reading? Well, must be, must be. <laughs> um, one or two of those. So I sent those off. Um, I've got staff that are seconded sideways during this COVID period and everyone else is part-time. So I'm covering the days that they're not there, whatever their job is. So yes, I wear, I don't know how many hats I wear. Yeah, I lost I lost count a few minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, which kind of makes the job fun. It's not a boring job. You can, uh, yeah, so you can do boring things if you want to, which is, you know, putting things in envelopes or putting your object files together or packing books up or you can do the things that I love so I like collection management I like to get my hands in the collection which I don't often get to do which is why I always snaffle the exhibition things um uh and put my ideas into place which is always exciting so that yeah the job's always very interesting admittedly I've been there for 23 years and not wanted to move anywhere else so I'm guessing I'll be there I'll be there for a while um, and we've got both of you here um Christine, primarily from a collection management lens and Lisa, primarily from a curatorial lens. I always say that your two roles or disciplines are opposed to each other. So naturally, curatorial wants to exhibit the artworks and collections want to preserve and protect um, the the exhibits and the and the collections. So I'm I'm really interested with the dynamic between mm. you both. Um, and you've you've worked together collaboratively, um, particularly in in training, um, particularly for regional institutions. So thank you for for valuing the regions. <laughs> um, it's always appreciated. Yeah. So do you find a opposition between presenting, exhibiting, providing access, and preserving, collecting, and storing? Well, what's interesting about that. Christine and I have a fairly uh, similar start. So I also went to the Queensland Museum to volunteer when they were in the old building and was packing dinosaur bones um, and then was a guide on the floor and then worked as a volunteer upstairs and then became um, a cataloger and then worked on exhibitions and kind of um, and then went out consulting in the regions. Um, I, I, to me, that's more of a big museum lens versus a small museum lens. So I am a curator, a collection manager, an exhibition designer, um, a conservator or a preventative, using preventative conservation techniques, uh, integrated pest management. We're all doing that all at once. Um, so I've only ever worked, I've worked in the Queensland Museum, but not in a uh, position that's um, powerful enough to think about, you know, those sort of, uh, but I'm familiar with it. So when I did exhibitions at the Queensland Museum, you'd have the conservators coming and saying, well, you can't do that with that because of these reasons. Um, and that can't be out. How long do you want to have that out? Therefore, it's nice to have that within reach, but the kids, the kids are going to touch it and nick things out of the medicine so box. So the thing I enjoyed when you would say when we first met, it wasn't a case of why you can't do that. To me, the part I enjoyed about my work was how can I make that possible to allow that to be made discoverable? And I think that's what we've, in terms of having it on display, um, there must be ways of us putting out there for everyone to see. And that was the challenge to myself, just that I like to think of ways. And that's another attribute of Lisa as well, thinking of outside of the norm in terms of um, what and how you can put objects on display because we both, I think, see that we're fortunate. We have the best job. We get to play and handle those things firsthand. The visitors come in 
and they look through the glass perspex and um, we want to well, share that with them and tell uh, I'm proud of the different um, Queensland history and the things we've been able to contribute to. Um, I'm learning a lot through Lisa and we sort of just... And I certainly learn a lot the other way. And we always, when we come and do these workshops regionally, learn something that we were, we, it's something new, some new way something someone's doing something or they've they've had a disaster and they dealt with it and it's an unusual way they dealt with it. And so we thought, well, that's a good idea. You know, that's a good idea. You know, we don't come saying, you know, we're the, you know, we've got all the ideas. We want some, you know, we want you to have an interaction with us and... And we also see it as an education thing. So we're keen, mm. like through this podcast, to educate your average citizen about what goes behind the scenes in a gallery or a museum or a keeping place or a library because it looks all shiny from the front but there's all this stuff going on at the back and it looks like you just plonk that thing there and stuck a label on it but depending on what size institution you're in, there might have been 20 people who worked on the one thing or if you're in my museum... I came up with the label, I mounted the label, I handled the objects and I had a thought about whether it was going to la- how long it was going to last on display and whether it needed a particular mount, um, which is one of, my, one of my things. I like designing boxes and mounts for things. Um, yeah, so, an edu- so part of that role is for us to educate the up-and-coming volunteer or the up-and-coming uh, person who wants to move into the museum area um, and well, give them a bit more understanding about the sort of jobs that they might be given should they go So Lisa might have an idea or a material or find something new and ask me and we just feed off, um, feed backwards and forwards with each other. Um, I see new products and I think, oh, that might be good for this and Lisa will be somewhere and find something and we, it's why I particularly enjoy the area whilst it deals with history, it actually brings in the science, you need to be, pay attention to detail. It's not, um, you're not pigeonholed. Definitely my job, I'm not pigeonholed. Your job, you're not pigeonholed. And it gives us the capacity to keep learning new things all of the time. And it's just being open-minded and prepared to encourage that progress and um, the whole approach we take to learning about caring for collections, organising your collections is aspirational. Don't feel overwhelmed because we've been in the same boat when you joined the police. Still, uh, in, the si- still in the same boat. It's yeah. still very easy to feel overwhelmed by the sort of jobs you think, oh, I haven't done that and it's going to take me a week. Mm-hmm. So redoing 30,000 lines of code. I did uh, while I was COVID was on and we were shut, you know, which you never get to otherwise because you think, oh, it's going to take me a week. It actually took me nine days to do that and I would never be able to do that at work but, you know, working away, it worked out quite well. Um, but, yeah, the overwhelming thing can take you, doesn't matter how long you've been in an institution, there were things. Mm, it does. Think, oh, I'm never going to get that done. And so what we've found is the people we often get to work with, um, because they're so close to some of their problems, they are overwhelmed and we think they've achieved amazing things and acknowledging the trip, the path that they've taken in um, encouraging them to keep moving forward. So even the approach to disaster planning like today and it doesn't matter, you say, who's got a plan? So there was a proportion of the audience, yes, who do, which is great. There's a proportion of the audience that no, they don't, or well, that's what they say. But when you start questioning them, have you got this list? Oh, yeah, we've got that. 
And we've got a copy of the plan of the building and we've got this. So it it's um, in the same way you, you're building up, you're acknowledging what you've done, but once you're too close to being, when you're overwhelmed, you think, oh, where do I start? It's all too hard and I don't know where to start. And part of what I like about Lisa and I working together is that it's breaking it down into bite-sized bits and being pragmatic and um, not being too hard on ourselves. I think the other thing is we've experienced, we've, we've had those same, very same feelings. So, And you've both worked um, diversely throughout Queensland. What are some of the interesting collections that you've come across? Like our collections represent our community. Um, so what are, the, what are the weird and wonderful ones that have been formed? Um, gosh. The one I think of, sorry, was... You thought of one, Christine. Yeah, Taroom. And it was the, um, in days when, um, it's a bit like the bush christening, and it was where you have a portable altar that the um, priest, uh, um, rector, someone would go out to you know, a day's dry, a day's sulky right away and on the back was a, a flat pack altar that when he got there he was able to just reassemble it and able to deliver his service. Out uh, at room. It's in the Tarum collection. So that was something that comes That's to mind. A rare object that you don't often come across. One of those. Yeah. And, and I think not being a historian, um, or a curator as such, but it's those things that would twerk or, or tweak. Um, my husband perhaps is not into historical things and when you go places you've got to try and find something that will, a bit of a hook um, to bring other people in to being a bit more interested in some of the amazing collections that are out there. Because we see that all, all, all of the museum work is all interrelated with Try and, you know, so you need to know your significance of your collection in order to know what you're going to spend your resources on, in order to know what you're going to catalogue, in order to know what you're going to put up online for people to see. It's all it's all interconnected. Some of them kind of think it's separated out. but And that we... I often say with a purist conservator perhaps who hasn't necessarily worked with regional collections or some of the, the differing demands, um, it's easy and I'm... Um, um, once you study the theory, applying um, an approach to caring for something could be very different if you've only ever worked in a, a Australian or um, state collection, whereas when you're in the regions, you're dealing with the fact that people are not always paid very, very rarely there's volunteers, the access to resource information, access to even the materials needed to care for those collections are limited. And that's part of the interest as well that we have in getting that to happen. Any other crazy collections existing in regional Queensland? Oh, I can think of a, I think of a good one, but it's not in Queensland, it's in Tenderfield. Ah. <laughs> what about the Seaside Museum at Bribey? Ah, yes, the Seaside Museum. Have they still got the fish collection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fish collection. So we did a, um, we were involved in a process to put um, the Seaside Museum exhibitions t together and write the labels and 
Um, we went out to Bribie and there's this, the, what are they, Amateur Fishermen? Amateur Fishermen's Association, Association of Queensland. This uh, collection of fish in, um, you know, the old specimen bottles. Okay, like yep. Weird stuff. So all the, <laughs> you know, look and think, what is that? Um and they plant, and it is there. They've put it in the middle of the seaside museum in a glass box, so you can walk by and see all the all the specimens. Um, yeah, really weird, Some unusual of, fish. And but historically, other. the Queensland Museum had been involved because some of the specimens had been um, collected. Um, not necessarily what's on display, but by the. Um, Darwin Beagle by the Beagle expedition and stuff like that. So to find it in the collection there, but then to consider how how do you display an alcohol collection? So there's all sorts of discussions about, you know, the alcohol evaporates out and that you have to refill it. So you have to have a plan for refilling or someone who's got to keep an eye on how quickly they're going, which means there's probably a problem with the air conditioning in it or the, the system and um, you know, what are we going to do with the off, you know, the gassing and the smell? You can't be, you know, you might, you know, chase your visitors out with the smell. There's all those sort of considerations. Insurance the and insurance fire. And uh, all those sort of things came in came into play. Um, that's kind of that's kind of illustrative of sometimes the, um, the designer wants the fish and you have to say, well, have you thought about all these other things that are associated with having all of these alcohol-soaked fish in bottles in the middle of your museum? Um, so whilst we're not necessarily specialists in fire fire restrictions and all that sort of thing, at least we can suggest that maybe had you ever considered, do you have to have the original on display? Because that at times is something um, that comes to mind. And often collecting and starting a collection isn't isn't mm-hmm. always something deliberate. Like perhaps with this fish exhibit, there wasn't always an intention to grow it, but maybe someone's personal enthusiasm started it and then it sort of, it becomes a collection. Almost every collection from small to big museums has been changed by the passions of those that look after it. Mm. Not so much, oh, I can't really say that. Early on my collection was moulded it went from being the educational collection and it was moved into the scientific area so the firearms grew and the scientific things grew because that's what the scientist was interested in um the forensic scientist was interested in uh the queensland museum when i worked there the curator was into toys so the toy collection has queensland toy collection grew like this um yeah and other collectors were into um lights and globes and capacitors and so that collection grew like that so and you probably would know in a gallery sense that curators like uh that particular style of artwork or that particular you know or you know yeah. they, they, and let's yeah. hope that in our today times yeah. that we don't have that, we, that yeah we, it's a more of a bounded thought out planned process for um growing the collection if that's what you want to do and not a willy-nilly mm. process um and so if someone did have a personal collection at home what would be your hot tips for helping them manage their personal collections at home? Um, that they know what they've got, mm. so make a list and they know My insurance where... company keeps telling me that. It, ah. almost, almost exactly, exactly what your insurance agency would ask you is list your things and where they're located. So... Um, which helps from a number of points of view. A, it helps you to, A, just know what you've got. 
be know um, that when there's a flood, a fire or some other disaster that requires you to exit the building or your house quickly, um, that you know what to grab or that you've actually thought about what it is you'd like to take. And, you know, people who live in the fire ravaged areas have a box normally with all their photographs mm. in and some of it, some of those areas even now we're getting into the hot, I have put it in the back of the car and it just stays there, you know, that's so, um, and then, um, um, if you choose to and some of the, what you've got, your collection is worth money or is valuable that way, then you should have a photograph of everything. And um, Christine was joking in the workshop today that just because we work in a museum doesn't mean our home collections. So I've got a collection of knickknacks <laughs> and um, I started photographing it but I never finished. Um, but, uh, yeah, so not knowing what you've got basically just as a, just as a start um, and making a note and then if you keep things like I do that remind you of places, so I've got things I got when I was overseas, I've got things people gave me on my birthdays, um, and and I used to remember where all those things came from, but I'm not sure going into the future I will actually remember what the provenance is of all of those things, especially if you're planning to leave them to the family or pass them on to a museum, provenance and being important. Provenance, and for me, I'd add in materials. So it's always useful. And adding on that insurance idea is if you've got something that may be silver um, or a particular metal or a particular material, you know it to be plastic or whatever, um, and if it's got a stone in it, like what you do with jewellery, it's applying those same principles, just what the insurance company is asking, we do, we're, we're not expecting anything too much more, but every little step that you progress along that line, it's a little bit more information. So at least then if you're listing it, if you haven't listed it before, you're looking at it and seeing what condition it's in. So I've got a candle that I bought in 1984 that was black, the sleek black. It's a cat, so like an Egyptian cat from the rocks in Sydney. Um, that candle saw, which I think is still there in the rocks. And um, so that's 1984. That's a long time. The candle is um, uh, decolouring back to the middle. So it'll be a clear cat in about three years, I think. Um, so you, you're looking at the conditions. So you might think, oh, I've got um, I've got a billum from the time we lived in Papua New Guinea. Um, and you might notice that it started to decay or something started to eat it, you know, so it gives you some indication of the condition of the things and that maybe you want to store them differently. Um, you've got a pest problem you didn't know about. Um, your metals decayed or started to rust so you've got a humidity problem maybe. So being informed about your collection is definitely a good place. And that, that way when you want to ring up someone and say this is happening, at least often I would ask is how do you know it's happening? Oh, I just think it is. But if you have a photo and you can explain to the person you're phoning up and saying, well, actually, no, this is what's happening. What should I be doing to stabilise it, get it back to where it was? That's the usefulness of photographs these days. It's just a, such a great tool being able to ask and asked in an informed way, a conservator or someone with some the specialisation, just what might be a solution and keeping that particular items of collections. Well, we have decades of experience sitting in front of us and we've only had a very short time to delve into what we know is a massive piece of work, so collections. So thank you both for taking some time out to um, come to the regions to visit Rockhampton um, and to have a chat with us. 
on this podcast. So Christine and Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you. Behind the Art is brought to you by Rockhampton Museum of Art. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing as there will be more releases every week. And if you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can find them at the Rockhampton Museum of Art website or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for all the latest news and information about the Rockhampton arts community and exciting new developments coming soon. Thank you.